There is no reforming the schools. The options are survival or escape. But this realization actually marks the beginning of a new and fulfilling educational journey. For both students and parents. Welcome to the School Sucks Project. Our mission is to provide clarity, support, and empowerment to parents who are concerned and frustrated with the content and culture of the public schools. We achieve this mission through the creation of educational and entertaining media and the development of supportive communities. Continuously building a more detailed picture of what genuine self-directed education can look like. We are determined to pursue this mission because we understand the dangers of indoctrination, toxic school culture, and short-sighted education policies. And we deeply value intrinsically motivated learning, autonomy, and choice in education. And please remember the three important facts we first tried to share when we started in 2009. The schools will not improve. Higher education will not improve. The political conversation about these institutions will not improve. Only we can improve. So let's begin. You aren't compelled to loan your car to anyone who wants it, but you are compelled to surrender your school-aged child to strangers who possess children for a livelihood, even though one in every nine school children is terrified of physical harm happening to them in school, terrified with good cause. We found a disturbing number of recent school shooters were either on medication or were experiencing withdrawal. If I demanded you give up your television to an anonymous itinerant repairman who needed work, you'd think I was crazy. If I came with a policeman who forced you to pay that repairman even after he broke your set, you would be outraged. So why? Why are you so docile when you give up your child to a government agent called the school teacher? I want to open up concealed aspects of modern schooling, such as the deterioration it forces in the morality of parenting. You have no say at all in choosing your teachers. You know nothing about their backgrounds or families. And the state knows little more than you do. This is as radical a piece of social engineering as the human imagination can conceive. What does it mean? One thing you do know is how unlikely it will be for any teacher to understand the personality of your particular child or anything significant about your family, culture, religion, plans, hopes, dreams. In the confusion of school affairs, even teachers so disposed don't have the opportunity to know those things. How did this happen? Before you hire a company to build a house, you would, I expect, insist on detailed plans showing what the finished structure was going to look like. Building a child's mind and character is what public schools do. Their justification for prematurely breaking family and neighborhood learning. Where is the documentary evidence to prove this assumption that trained and certified professionals do it better than people who know and love them can? There isn't any. The cost in New York State for building a well-schooled child in the year 2000 is $200,000 per body when lost interest is calculated. That capital sum invested in the child's name over the past 12 years would have delivered a million dollars to each kid as a nest egg to compensate for having no school. The original $200,000 is more than the average home in New York costs. 
You wouldn't build a home without some idea of what it would look like when finished, but you are compelled to let a core of perfect strangers tinker with your child's mind and personality without the foggiest idea what they want to do with it. Law courts and legislatures have totally absolved school people from liability. You can sue a doctor for malpractice, not a school teacher. Every home builder is accountable to customers years after the home is built, not school teachers though. You can't sue a priest, a minister, or rabbi either. That should be a clue. If you can't be guaranteed even minimal results by these institutions, not even physical safety, if you can't be guaranteed anything except that you'll be arrested if you fail to surrender your kid, just what does the public in public schools mean? Hello and welcome back to The Essential School Sucks. This is number nine, Who Controls Our Children? That audio that you heard to open the show was from a video that I made back in 2013. It's called Before You Send Your Child to Public School and it is me reading an excerpt from John Taylor Gatto's The Underground History of American Education. It's part of a collection of 15 videos that I have made so far. Inspired by Gatto's work, they are all linked as a playlist in the show notes. That material was written by Gatto sometime in the late 1990s. It's hard to know exactly when because all of these are little vignettes that appear in the Underground History book. But today we're going back even further. What I'm offering you here, and I know I have built up anticipation to this several times in the Essential School Sucks collection so far, is what I am very proud of as a linear and efficient the show is not as long as it could have been, and sober look at the history of public schooling in the United States. But we actually move through the 19th and early 20th centuries fairly swiftly, because what I want to focus on in this show is a history, a kind of revolution in the programming of children that actually affected us. A puzzle piece that I definitely wanted to include in this series is a practice called Outcomes-Based Education. I first discovered it in 2012, and it was one of the most important discoveries in my work as the creator of uh, the School Sucks podcast. Who Controls Our Children is the title of an obscure and miraculously still on YouTube video from a town meeting in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, August 3rd, 1992. The speaker is a woman named Peg Luxick, who is the founder of the Pennsylvania Parents Commission. She is discussing with great concern her organization's efforts to understand some startling curriculum changes that were coming to Pennsylvania at that time. But in the video, it's revealed that Pennsylvania is only a case study because this was being replicated in the country almost simultaneously, almost in every state. The entire second half of the show today is devoted to this. If you're super pressed for time, just skip 40 minutes in and it will be right around there. The existence of and the progression of outcomes-based education, which has had many names, is one of the most shocking revelations that I'm presenting to you in this first section, especially when you consider its development circa 30 years ago in the context of what is happening in the schools today. And I'll tell you what, little behind the scenes, if you don't mind. The plan for this Essential School Sucks number nine 
was actually a podcast from 10 years ago, all the way back in the summer of 2012, where a group of four of us had our curiosity stimulated by the submission of an article. We were doing a live show. We used to be on the radio. The submission of an article about how the Texas legislature was trying to ban critical thinking from their school's curriculum. I said, for our purposes, that's too good to be true. And what we discovered was critical thinking was being used as a euphemism for outcomes-based education and many of its prior and descendant forms of indoctrination. It has, as we learned in the last episode of School Sucks on the gun issue, absolutely nothing to do with critical thinking. But the show was clunky, and it was 10 years ago, so I didn't know as much. I hadn't integrated as much. I also had a bunch of other voices co-hosting the show with me who were uh, also very novice to the subject at the time. And I said, well, yeah, this is entertaining. This is a, a light and fun treatment of a very dark subject. But in the entire history of School Sucks, I must have something better on this subject. So I went to schoolsucksproject.com, and I started searching a variety of keywords. And then I remembered that a month before the pandemic started— I had had a conversation with a man named Pete Canones, where I provided this linear history, heavily weighted towards this latter portion of the history. The problem was, unlike the radio show, this new show didn't include any clips of Luxic giving this talk. I think clips are a nice production enhancement. Now, of all the shows in this collection of 50, this is going to be the one featuring the most VHS quality audio. But that's not because I didn't work hard on producing this show. It's because, you guessed it, I did. I found the video, I downloaded it, I hadn't watched it in several years, uh, so I cleaned up the audio, and then I curated, as I do around here, curated a selection of clips that I thought were particularly relevant to our situation 30 years later, and I inserted them into the conversation with Pete. So now, combining the best attributes of two shows that were eight years apart, two years after the latter one, I think I have produced the best record of outcomes-based education, perhaps available on the internet, because it also includes all of the historical context that Peg Luxick was obviously not able to cover in an hour in her talk 30 years ago. So in the question, who controls our children, let's remember, we were somebody's our children at one point. Our parents were somebody's our children. And as far in human history as you want to continue that back in time, I'm very confident the statement will remain true. But control is a newer phenomenon. It's existed in a variety of forms over the last several thousand years. But the progression of a project to perfect the control of children is the story that I want to share with you today as we come to the end of this first section in The Essential School Sucks called The Real Problems with Public School. There's lots of provocative buzzwords in the school conversation today. There's ones that are more accurate, but still kind of inflammatory, like indoctrination. There's lots of vagaries around the injection of things like critical race theory and gender studies into the curriculum for students as young as elementary school. And then on the other side, we have provocations like the people attending school board meetings complaining about these other things are basically domestic terrorists. But the anger demonstrated in school board meetings today is kind of a predictable outcome if you look at the history of a building frustration about the loss of control for families and communities. Before we get started today, I'll play you a clip of Peg Luxick warning about this problem two months short of 30 years ago. 
the regulatory process in our state really isn't controlled by the legislature. It's controlled by appointed bureaucrats who really don't care what you think. They sit at the meetings. They follow the letter of the law. They give the time. But your input is not really input. Example. In February of this year, the State Board held a public hearing on the, the student learning outcomes and the regulations. The room was big enough to hold 80 people, 500 showed up. They would not move the room. And we began the meeting with an attorney for the parents saying it would really be helpful to facilitate dialogue and consensus if we could get some really basic questions answered here. And the State Board said, we're not here to answer any questions. And he said, OK, I can appreciate that this is a public hearing, and this is public comment, and you're not here to answer any questions. But parents have been asking these questions now for two years. Where do they go to get the questions answered? And the state board said, that's a matter of public policy, how you get your questions answered. And the attorney said, that's great. Could you explain the public policy to all these 500 people so they know what to do to get their questions answered? And the state board said, we're not here to answer any questions. When you go to hearings, they give you a topic for the hearing. So one set of hearings is on the student learning outcomes, and one set of hearings is on the goals. Now, if you go in and say, but the whole program is terrible, they say, excuse me, the topic here is this piece of paper. So you have to confine your remarks to this piece of paper. So what happens? Well, in one of the goals, the original was that the personal family and community living that the students will acquire and use the proper attitudes and behaviors necessary for successful personal family and community living. I testified in, the Senate, in front of the Senate Education Committee and said, what is a successful family? Two people cannot agree. How are you going to measure the attitudes necessary for it? Their response, they took out the word successful. So in order for parents to make a difference, they need to step outside the regulatory process and look at where do they go in order to drive the cart the way they want it to be driven. You go to the legislature. So in Pennsylvania, we went to the legislature. And we asked for a resolution that would ask the Department of Education to slow down long enough for the House of Representatives to at least look at the regulations so that everybody could understand them, so there could be some real input. And we won that debate by a vote of 150 to 47, which is fairly significant. And the Department of Education said, we're doing it anyway. And they are doing it anyway. If you got involved now, what they would say to you is, this is a done deal. The last thing before we start, usually I save this for the end of the show. When I started planning this project in April of 2022, seeing the importance, seeing the rising levels of interest in the question of what is going on in these schools, I said, I could probably set aside two hours each day to get what I think is the most essential information to the people who need it most now and in the future. Then I found myself working on shows, shows that were already done, to do stuff I love, to go back and clean them up and take out irrelevant material and record new monologues explaining their significance and context, finding new media material to use, taking four hours, five hours, six hours, sometimes more in the case of the show you're about to hear. And I'm happy to do it because it's a labor of love, but there are other things I love like eating food and living indoors. So I will continue to take my time. Podcasting is forever. Why not do your very best, I've always said, even with podcasts that are already over. And I will continue to pursue this project to the very end, no matter how much time it takes. But it requires your support. 
I'm definitely going to stand by what I said last year that the School Sucks podcast is over. I'm trying to leave it clean and comprehensible to a future audience because this problem is going to get worse before it gets better. And this current project and all of the related positive feedback that I've received so far is really building my motivation and enthusiasm for continuing to spread this message into the future in new forms beyond podcasting. You'll learn more about that soon. And I know in this first phase of the Essential School Sucks, we have been pretty consumed by problems. But as we round the corner into this next phase called leaving public school and finding educational alternatives, I am supremely confident that more and more people will discover value in what we're doing. But I'm going to ask for your support now. And the easiest way to do it is to become a patron at patreon.com slash school sucks. There are links in the show notes, which you can access right from whatever device you're listening to my voice on right now. For Patreon and all of the other ways that you can support us, you can pick. There is a variety. As always, thanks for listening. This is The Essential School Sucks, number nine, Who Controls Our Children? Originally released February 12th, 2020, as Podcast 642, With Every Turn of the Screw. Thanks for listening. Here we go. Load up on guns, bring your friends, it's fun to lose and to pretend. She's overboard, self-assured, and all I know are dirty words. This is a follow-up to the conversation that you heard with Dave Smith on Monday. It is an edited-down version of my appearance with Pete Canones. And on Monday, I promised a deeper level of exploration into this topic beyond what I talked about with Dave, covering a longer timeline. Today's show attempts to better detail a progression in compulsory schooling that took place between the middle of the 1800s and really right up to the turn of the 21st century. So I tell the story to Pete's audience as three key turning points or escalations. And what's important to understand about this progression is each stage is justified by the revolutionaries as the logical next step. And this is due to obviously, number one, some pretty glaring philosophical corruptions or at the very least oversights. And number two, the American public tacitly, or in some cases ignorantly, accepting all of the previous steps. So at one point, we're talking about something called the Behavioral Science Teacher Education Program, developed at Michigan State University in 1967. At this point, we are 100 years beyond the acceptance, at least in some places, of mass compulsion schooling in the United States. We're 50 years beyond the Woodrow Wilson administration and 30 years beyond the New Deal. Americans have, at this point, accepted a lot as far as state intrusions into their lives are concerned. In the Underground History of American Education by John Taylor Godoy book, you will certainly hear referenced in this episode of School Sucks on page 40. Gatto writes in a section called Participatory Democracy Put to the Sword. 30-odd years later, between 1967 and 1974, teacher training in the United States was covertly revamped through coordinated efforts of a small number of private foundations, select universities, global corporations, think tanks, and government agencies, all coordinated through the U.S. Office of Education and through key state education departments like those in California, Texas, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and New York. 
Important milestones in the transformation were, one, an extensive government exercise in futurology called Designing Education for the Future, two, the Behavioral Science Teacher Education Program, and three, Benjamin Bloom's two-volume Taxonomy of Educational Objectives, an influential manual which in time impacted every single government school in America. While other documents exist, these three are appropriate touchstones of the whole, each serving to make clear the nature of the project underway. Skipping a paragraph ahead, the second document, the giant behavioral science teacher education program, outlined teaching reforms to be forced on the country after 1967. If you ever want to hunt this thing down, it bears the U.S. Office of Education contract number OEC 09320424042, and we're going to take a closer look at it in just a minute here. The document sets out clearly the intentions of its creators, nothing less than, quote, impersonal manipulation, unquote, through schooling of a future America in which, quote, few will be able to maintain control over their opinions, unquote. An America in which, quote, each individual receives a multi-purpose identification number, unquote, which enables employers and other controllers to keep track of underlings and expose them to direct or subliminal influence when necessary. Readers learned that, quote, chemical experimentation, unquote, on minors would be normal procedure in this post-1967 world. A pointed foreshadowing of the massive Ritalin interventions which now accompany the practice of forced schooling. Chemical experimentation. That sounds pretty f***ing hardcore, right? But let's take our time with this one. Let's travel to the document itself and take a closer look. One of its functions is to predict the conditions of a future society, forecasting what America and American schooling would look like at various points in the future. Each one of these forecasts is broken up into a number of categories. I'm gonna share one with you. Uh, it's called Biological Capabilities in Controlling Inherited Characteristics and Potentialities. And what each one of these factors of future society includes is a description of what they predict, the implications of that situation and prescriptions that follow those implications. So again, this one, biological capabilities in controlling inherited characteristics and potentialities. And you can just imagine it as a 1967 prediction of our current age from the social and cultural bomb shelters of scientific academia at the time. Description. Biological capabilities for controlling a child's birth and his development and reactions after birth will increase. Birth control capabilities will become perfected on a semi-permanent level. Thus, most children will be wanted and designed with maximum capacities for future development and minimal hindrance to projected development. Consequences. The society's capacities for quality living will be enhanced by the quality of its citizenry and the level of development which will be reached by many. However, for personal, philosophical, political reasons, birth control may not be practiced and children may be programmed without balanced characteristics and capacities. Potentialities for conflict will be increased by various kinds of elites with different values and priorities. So then we move on to prescriptions. So listen up, solutions coming. Educational outcomes. Working relationships with medical centers to facilitate the use of medical tools to produce children of desired learning potentialities. Impact on school personnel. Greater need to be able to help extremely different individuals attain maximum development 
or at least to individualize instruction to promote growth. Oh, that sounds pretty good. Oh, whoops, there's more. In prescribed directions. And greater need to be able to work with children who are biologically superior. Impact on preparation programs. Increased efforts to improve diagnostic and prescriptive skills. Increased efforts to minimize deficiencies and build on strengths. And finally, illustrative responses. Increased efforts to create diagnostic and prescriptive competencies on an individualized basis. For example, through the use of tutoring experiences. And utilization of drugs, organ transplants, and other means in an effort to minimize some of the biological gap between personnel and students. Now, if you are a young academic or a graduate student working on this project in the 1960s, I would honestly think that most of this sounds pretty innocuous and maybe would even inspire some hope about the future, that mitigating some of these challenges of inequality will be possible one day. This is the story of an amoral, rational, step-by-step progression that aimed to produce harmony and efficiency in the world. It's not a James Bond movie. And this is one of the reasons why I think the articulation and the spreading of a certain philosophy of education and a certain political philosophy is really important. Because this is an easy thing to greenlight if you don't have a political philosophy rooted in autonomy, in individual liberty, in voluntary interactions. It makes it very easy to overlook all the things that could go wrong here. Perverse incentives, unintended consequences, crony capitalism, and mission creep. That philosophy that I spoke about a minute ago, not part of the considerations in academia, in educational bureaucracies, in think tanks, or in the mass public opinion that these institutions have shaped. This is what Michael Malice referred to in the new right as the cathedral. So I'll pause for a moment to express some appreciation for everybody who has tried to at least enter not only the philosophy of liberty into the conversation, but also a philosophy of education that focuses on self-directed, intrinsically motivated learning, but perhaps in this case, even more importantly, a voluntary relationship between the educator, so-called, and the educated, or the educating. We could even say, if we want to be super charitable, despite the best intentions, when the worldview that we advocate and we propagate politically and educationally on this show and other shows is absent from the exploration of how to design education for the future, the schooling culture, the schooling climate we witness today, it makes perfect sense. It's like always shocking, never surprising. In fact, today's conversation will culminate with a justification of this anti-libertarian, anti-privacy, anti-individuality approach to mass schooling that most of you will find shocking, but that everybody else just quietly accepted as the rational next step in schooling America's children. But you're about an hour away from that right now. Thank you so much for listening. Please check out Pete's show, Free Man Beyond the Wall. This is a trimmed down version of our whole conversation, and we join it already in progress. Here we go.
you've studied Gatto, uh, John Taylor Gatto extensively. Have you, did you know him? I did not know him. Um, we had lots of mutual friends. Obviously, my friend Richard Grove worked very closely with him on the Underground History documentary, which was called The Ultimate History Lesson, A Weekend with John Taylor Gatto. I think that came out in 2011 or 2012. Uh, I got to write the foreword for the new version of that book, uh, one of the volumes of the new version of that book that should be coming out sometime within the next year or so. Yeah, you mentioned Richard. I'm actually interviewing him on Wednesday. So we're going to we're going to talk about Woodrow Wilson. Interesting. Of all the things that Rich could talk about, Woodrow Wilson. So what's uh, what's the angle? Just trashing or anything specific? Oh, the worst per- the worst president in, in the history of presidents ever. I'll buy and, that. Yeah. Yeah. Just just absolute destruction of any individual liberty that, that would exist. Dictating America's foreign policy forever and ever and ever. And just there's so much. I mean, Federal Reserve. We won't get in World War One. We're going to get no, in World War One. He, he's okay. also the originator of one of my favorite quotes. Woodrow Wilson is on education. Uh, I think he he gave this. It was part of a speech he gave to a group of teachers when he might have been the president of Princeton University. We want one class of people to have a liberal education. We want another class, a very much larger class of necessity to forego the privilege of a liberal education, which back then meant free, and fit themselves to perform specific difficult manual tasks, unquote. Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> that, that almost certainly leads into what we were going to what we're going to talk about. What's funny is I was talking I was doing an interview yesterday with somebody who did jury nullification, actually went into a federal drug case and was able to nullify the jury. And he was talking about conspiracy and and just the term conspiracy. And literally, it's just two people deciding to do something together. And in court, that's all it is. And to call and and when I originally contacted you about this, I said, you know, let's go over the conspiracy to give us the education system that we have now. And, you know, and and when you read that back, you're just like, I sound like a tinfoil hatter. But no, this was. This was a bunch of people getting together and saying, look, this is what we need to do to you know, to guide the populace in the way we want. Mm-hmm. And to call that a conspiracy or a conspiracy theory is just outrageous. I mean, powerful people get together all the time to decide they want to do things. They do it out in the open. It's called the Bilderberg Group. Sure. And you know, so, um, so yeah, let's just let's let's start running with that. If you look at the history of government education, what we'll call the Prussian model that we have right now, uh, where does it start? Okay, well, I mean, geez, you could go all the way back to to Puritan times with this. And when we were talking about it before the show, and and looking for like the biggest conspiracy behind turning the schools into these indoctrination centers. It's hard to pin down one, right? Because like you could say, well, the setup of the Prussian system was a big one because it makes all the others possible. But some of the others could be seen as as more destructive, too. If you trace the whole story in America, which now runs over 170 years, it's a story of increasing leverage of scientific managers through, I would say, three major revolutions all spaced about 50 or 60 years apart. So you have the arrival of the Prussian system in the middle of the 1800s. You have the progressive reforms at the beginning of the 1900s. And then you have this kind of um, behaviorist add-on happening in the 1960s and the 1970s. And that has lots of outgrowths as well. So it's the story of increasing leverage of scientific managers. It's also the story of the boiled frog, you know, as far as the American people are concerned. 
Yeah, I mean, the Prussian system that I'm sure you've talked about on we I think we talked about it last time I was on the show a little bit. And I'm sure it's come up anytime education uh, is mentioned happening in the middle of the 19th century uh, is a kind of mold. It's brought here from Central Europe. A lot of people would go out uh, in from America, namely Horace Mann, but they were also doing this in England. They were also doing this in France. They were looking at the ways society worked in industrial like coal competitors and uh, Prussia was a very interesting place at that time. So uh, they, had a, they had a very, very regimented society. And for a country about to have an industrial revolution, that was a model that was worth replicating. So the Prussian system comes to America through Horace Mann, starts in Massachusetts, spreads from state to state very quickly. It's a kind of mold. It has the benefits, if you will, of replacing the predictability of the slave system in a labor force. Uh, it works to standardize immigrants to that predictability and produce a kind of social and industrial harmony. And one of the reasons why I think the Prussian system gets talked about so much is it is a major transition in education away from a family and community based approach to it to like an industrial and collective approach to it. You know, and, and once that happens, it's almost like there's no going back from that. So I would say that's the uh, the first phase one. I'll just pause here if there's anything you want to add. Yeah. Well, is it around this time or really when is it that schooling just basically becomes mandatory? That's not going to be until I mean, there, there were compulsory attendance laws in certain states at that time. But most of the, the mandatory school attendance isn't going to be like across the country isn't going to be in place for, for decades at this point. Okay. Like the first Prussian schools are popping up in the United States in the 1850s, 1860s. So the mandatory attendance laws are coming, but they're not they don't arrive at exactly the same time. How are they catering the curriculum? Uh, who's picking out what you know, what they deem that people need to learn in order to. You know, even talked about you're going to have different hierarchies. Um, and w I, I remember I went to government school up till eighth grade and they actually had it set up where a couple classes per grade had the people that they felt that they could succeed, that were getting good grades and they could and, and that they could get ahead in life. And they would talk to us about, OK, you you can become lawyers. You can you really shouldn't go to you know, government schools for high school. Maybe think about a private school, apply to this place, apply to that place. But then the rest of the the rest of the classes in the grade were just you know, prison cells. I mean, it was just to to keep those kids from killing each other or, you know, running rampant around the school and everything. So how is a curriculum decided in those early days? Originally, it was very much borrowed from Prussia, which was about military and industrial efficiency, which is how we get things like uh, the Bell age group segregation. It's about producing good, reliable and above all predictable citizenship. So they're, they're taking cues directly from the curriculum of the Prussian schools. The system came here whole, at least to Massachusetts, and then it probably adjusted a little bit. And, you know, another interesting thing about this is that there was probably a lot more student buy-in in, let's say, 1870 than there would have been in 1970, or certainly than there is 50 years later, you know, here today, in that this was the only place that so-called education could happen. 
the world seemed very small, you know? I mean, after the arrival of television, forget about after the arrival of the internet, I think young people can see how, how big the world actually is, how much there is to do, how much there is to see, how much there is to think about, how much there is to engage them, and that none of it is happening in, in school. So they can see the system that they're forced to be a part of is very antiquated. It's a factory-based system. Um, I don't think that was as visible to people 100 years ago. Well, you mentioned the, the second stage of that would be, uh, I guess, going into the progressive era. So um, how did things change when that happened? Okay, well, the progressives also, you know, if you could think about the first revolution as a kind of social and industrial harmony, uh, the progressives were more looking to produce a kind of secular utopia. So if you just kind of channel this through the vision of somebody like John Dewey, you know, he's looking at the system that exists and not everything that he really had to say was 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 terrible. He said, maybe kids don't need to be drilled to the extent that they're being drilled in this Prussian model of schooling. Uh, but it was also, you know, once collectivist education replaces like individual pursuits or family or community based education, you know, it's already too late because they understand the leverage that the schools have to produce the society that they want. It's the same like Rothbard talks in. Um, for a new liberty in his chapter about education, about all of these interests that kind of converge who, who want to use the schools as a weapon to the Ku Klux Klan is among them, you know, uh, in the 1920s. So Dewey sees that the system is probably over regimented. I believe that he does care about education, but then progressives follow in the 1900s and the 1910s, and they very much want to use it for their, their own kind of, of standardization. So, I mean, once the collectivist model is in place, it's like, well, how can we use it for collectivist purposes? What was that? I mean, what are they teaching? I mean, when I look at the progressive era, and I, I mostly ever look at it from an economic standpoint, and um, you know, th that was horrifying. But you know, how, how are the progressives really changing what's been taught up until that point? So if there was like an overarching mes message in the schools and a kind of pedagogy, it was like schooling people to their place. There's the um, Alexander English book that came out around 1920 called The Principles of Secondary Education. And in that book, he laid out these six functions and one he called the propedeutic function, which was basically to, you know, looking at the entire the entirety of society. Schools are a place where society orders what it needs. Right. Basically ordering out of the schools what. My, and that was still the case up until Common Core, which I think eventually we'll get to. Um, and, and many of these sort of like efforts to overhaul education on the federal level, No Child Left Behind, Goals 2000, is like private interests look at the schools. They're happy to have, you know, taxpayers pay to train their labor force and say this is what we need for, for the coming decades. So I think you see progressives have a new vision of what harmony is where the, the initial push to have compulsory schooling might have been about, you know, one kind of harmony. The progressives have their own version of harmony and they're using the same system to, to produce it. You know, I think there's an operating principle of those who seek control that's basically like people are stupid and dangerous, right? And that was like one of the, the motivating forces behind the setup of the school. People are stupid and dangerous. It's a shame that in, you know, 2020, when we're talking about issues like climate change and guns, those seeking control are still saying the same things. It's kind of ironic after this system has been in place for 150 years that people are still so stupid and dangerous that they need to be controlled even more. But, um, you know, that was the operating principle at, at each stage, or at least at these first two stages. 
I don't want to demonize the, the people who were setting up or trying to reform the schools at the turn of the 20th century, which involved industrialists and, and corporate interests like the Rockefellers, but also involved more ideological people like Dewey um, and a, you know, a whole bunch of, of academics. They saw an influx of immigrants. They saw a lot of alien behaviors, if you will, and it was kind of a terrifying thing. And I think we could even we could even understand that if we were, you know, part of the ruling class of society and we looked out at a changing population, uh, that would be mildly and maybe very terrifying in some cases. And, and there might even be some some relations to that now or some parallels that we could draw to our, our current world. We see things that are happening on college campuses. Uh, we see things that are happening like with the migrant crisis in Europe. And we go, well, OK, this is like a little bit tense, you know. So if you were in a position, I mean, not maybe you or I, but if people didn't have our principles and they were in a position to try and assert some control over this, that's what they're going to do. And that's basically what they did. So, you know, that's that's the story of public education through the first couple in a nutshell. <laughs> that's the story yeah, yeah. of public education through the first couple decades of the 20th century, too. OK, so most historians of the progressive era say, you know, 19, 19, 1920, it ends uh, nine years later. You have a stock market crash a couple of years after that. Um, FDR gets elected and things really start to change. In your opinion, was the progressive move to change and tailor education, did they try to do anything to change that once they started going into New Deal territory where, yeah, you're going to have to basically teach these kids in school that the New Deal is great, that all of these social uh, programs need to be instituted? Or was that something that would, would have already, you know, 10 years earlier, 15 years earlier, they would have started implementing to get people thinking that way? Oh, they had the model. So, so you mean like before the New Deal came in, would progressives be like indoctrinating people to accept it? Yes. Oh, I'm about to give you another of my favorite quotes. Uh, <laughs> this, this is a powerful one. Uh, but I wanted to run through a progression of these over like 50 years. I pulled three quotes from my uh, collection of notes on this subject. And, and just to, again, in an attempt to try to understand the progressive mindset at this, this tumultuous time in American history. There was a professor named Arthur Calhoun who wrote a book in 1919 called The Social History of the Family from Colonial Times to the Present. And in it, he writes, in general, and, and there's like foreshadowing of New Deal type needs in this as well, but then I'll, I actually have a quote directly from a New Dealer. In general, society is coming more and more to accept as a duty the task of guaranteeing wholesome upbringing of the young. As amusement and social intercourse have forsaken the poverty-stricken homes and betaken themselves to public places, the child passes more and more into the custody of community experts who are qualified to perform the complexer functions of parenthood, which the revolution in industrial and social life has made imperative and in which the parents have neither the time nor the knowledge to perform. Now, this might have seemed perfectly true. And I think a lot of these people were operating from a place that they thought was responsible and compassionate, just to kind of reduce the, the black and white 
uh, good and evil, because that's how this is. This my problem has always been. This is easy to dismiss it as a conspiracy if you talk about it too much in terms of black and white, good and evil. These people were looking out at a problem that was true. You know, like there were things that children needed that a lot of parents at that time might have had trouble delivering because of the way that the economy worked, because of you know high levels of poverty in certain places. Uh, now that doesn't mean that that isn't a completely like megalomaniacal kind of way of thinking or or justifying whatever happens next. But that's kind of like setting this up as, all right, well, here we are in America. This is the case. And this is what responsible people would do. Right. We would transfer more and more of these responsibility, these responsibilities, excuse me, into the custody of community experts. Right. Who have the skills in child rearing that parents don't. And this is an outcome of something that started decades and decades early, earlier with the Prussian system, which is like we're transferring schools from the family or we're transferring education. Excuse me. can't believe I still make that mistake all the time. We're transferring education from the family, from the individual to the collective, right, to this larger system. Well, 70 years later, that's a perfectly rational statement that Calhoun makes. This is what we're doing. And now it's time to take it to the next level. So just over 10 years later, as they're trying to start to implement New Deal programs at the election of after the election of FDR, the guy who's the head of the National Recovery Act, which was just one of the New Deal um, initiatives, his name was Louis Albert. And he wrote, Russia and Germany are attempting to compel a new order by means typical of their nationalism, compulsion. The United States will do it by moral persuasion. Of course, we expect some opposition, but the principles of the New Deal must be carried to the youth of the nation. We expect to accomplish by education what dictators in Europe are seeking to do by compulsion and force, unquote. Again, perfectly rational statement. Hey, the good, we're the good guys, right? It goes back to all the way, like you can see the lineage of this. Horace Mann looks at the system in Prussia he goes, yeah, I mean, they kind of abuse their people with this. You know, they teach them obedience, conformity, compliance. Um, it produces kind of a, you know, an apathetic public that isn't too impressive, but we'll bring it here and we'll use it for good. All of this stuff is on archive.org, by the way. Like every book that Gatto mentions in the Underground History of American Education, you can go find it on archive.org. And sometimes, you know, if I have a criticism of Gatto, it's like he, he is doing the good and bad thing, I think, a little bit too much sometimes. But if you just kind of zoom out and you look that this is a whole book about how to control somebody else's children, right? That's the purpose. It's like, a, you know, an inter-academia uh, uh, circular that's going on about what to do with other people's children. Existing in a system that's made it inevitable for these people. There's no other way to do this, right? We've, we've been doing public education for, you know, 70 years by the time the 1920, 80 years by the time the New Deal rolls around. Why would we try to do anything different? Why would we think any differently, right? The precedent has been set. Collectivism was ratcheted up at every stage and at every turn of that screw, the system not only becomes more regular for the people who are working inside it, but it becomes more accepted and harder and harder for people to imagine in a society without it, like outside of it. And all that it does just becomes fine. And then once it's fine, it just kind of becomes invisible. So obviously, these are the kinds of conversations that would happen behind closed doors. You jump ahead 40 years. This was the other. I, was, I wanted to do this like progression of three quotes. And then we can go back to the New Deal thing if you want. No problem. Okay. The NEA president, 
Catherine Barrett, 1972, says, those two complementary philosophies fueled the vision of NEA leaders who sought a utopian world, freed from biblical constraints and ruled by humanist politicians and taught by progressive educators. Parental rights and religious freedom would be swallowed up by the surpassing rights and rules of the greater community, the controlled collective, unquote. Now that's evil. <laughs> well, all right. So, but that's the progression over 50 years. The first quote was 1919. The last quote was 1972. Yeah. That, I mean, that one is just, that's so blatant. You know, it's like you said with the other quotes, it's uh, you can really look into it and you can see, and it's like, Hey, you know, we see a problem here. We have to solve it. This is how we think we can solve it. Even, even if they weren't there with their fingers going like this, you know, and you know, everything was, it was all conniving and everything. But yeah, that last one is just, um, Yeah. Before we go forward and we talk more about that, one other subject I wanted to hit before uh, before we go to more of a modern day is how education would have changed through the war years. Like, um, you, know, you have World War II, and then after World War II, they build a Pentagon. And I always say when they built a Pentagon, it was going to be perpetual war. Mm -hmm. So you have to be able to indoctrinate at a young age so that people understand, you know, so that people aren't not only willing to accept it, but they're willing to cheerlead it. So did that change? Did that enter education at all? I mean, shoot, we see it in the NFL. So, yeah, so. <laughs> I don't, I don't think, I don't think it needed to change. I think those lessons were there from the beginning of American schools, right? What I, what I identified early on in the podcast is the three hidden lessons of school. Um, obedience being number one, conformity being number two, and the product of those two lessons learned is a kind of philosophical, intellectual, spiritual, personal apathy. If you outsource um, individual responsibility through and decision-making through obedience and conformity, apathy is um, a predictable follow from that, you know? So... I think this, the schools, uh, the, the cybernetic effect of the schools was already in place by that point that they could probably just keep doing very similar to what they had been doing. I mean, you, you see that society needed some re-education, like Disney got involved during World War II. Have you ever seen any of those like pay your taxes, Donald Duck cartoons? Yeah, I have, okay. All right. And, and obviously all the, the newsreel propaganda that played at the beginning. So you have Hollywood on board. School had set a foundation to make those other kinds of propagandizing not seem completely offensive, right, to the average American. I mean, you just think like that Donald Duck cartoon, like in, obviously we have the benefit of time, right? And, and the wisdom gained through, you know, 50 collective years lived since, you know, that cartoon was made and maybe when we first saw it. But somebody made that and said, yeah, this will work. This is good. And it did. You know, it, it was in all those campaigns were effective. You look at the propaganda posters themselves. Very, very few questions were asked in America during that war, and it was considered to be the good war. It was very, very effectively sold to a public that had been, um, you know, dumbed down by, at that point, maybe four generations of this schooling. Again, the collectivism ratcheting up at every turn. Uh, World War I was tougher because it was novel. But I think in World War II was maybe more inevitable, but both were sold, no problem. And I think school, as it already existed, was a, a huge contributor to that. 
So you say there was a third step uh, in the 70s, and you mentioned behavioral. Okay, so this I think this one kind of leads us all the way up to the present day. Gatto and I had to go. I had to go pull these these documents and read through them, and they're just exhaustive. And they're 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 not terrifying, but they're like they're very annoying. And parts of them, I yeah, parts of them are a little scary. Some of the things they talk about. So there was the this big initiative in teacher training in the late '60s and early '70s that involved private foundations, academia, corporations, think tanks, and government agencies. And it was all kind of coordinated through the the forerunner of the Department of Education, which was called the U.S. Office of Education. They were these like training manuals that were produced for uh, the future, right? The future of education. You could see the world changing at this time. You know, it's the space race. There's uh, you know, early technological revolution taking place. So we're thinking about how to redesign education for the future. And Gatto actually talks about uh, two or three. He talks about all three of them, I think, in the underground history of American education. One was called Designing Education for the Future. It was produced by um, the early version of the Department of Education. Might have been that same U.S. Office of Education. Its push was that education is a means to achieve economic and social goals of a national character, right? So again, it's the same kind of, this is not about individual. This is not about local schools. And in that document, you see a kind of plan laid out for how state departments of education become enforcers for the federal government. So schools need to give up individual identities, which I guess still existed to some degree at that time. And now we're looking like, you know, national curriculum, national standardization. Another one called the Behavior Science Teacher Education Project was um, Michigan State University, 1968 which includes things like tracking people by numbers, uh, chemical experimentation. So this was actually one of the phrases I control found and tried to find in the document. Gatto put chemical experimentation in the um, in quotes, and I couldn't find it. So then there's a feasibility follow-up study, and it's like predicting what the world will be like. Again, this was written in 1968. So there's this prediction of like, what will it be like in 1984? That was a year that they picked. I, I don't know. Like, so they they... they outline the world of uh, 1994 and then I think 84, excuse me. And then they do, I think the year 2000. And then I think they do the year 2100. And in one of them, they're talking about, we'll get to a place where it will be possible to modify learning challenges with chemical interventions. Like it actually, it, it actually says that in, in the document. And the other one was uh, Bloom's taxonomy of educational objectives, which was basically a tool to classify everything about individuals. The idea was we could test people more for attitudes and values instead of just academic competencies. And these three things, and there's, there's several other examples that happened during this third revolution of, you know, not just behaviorism, but also like data collection on students. And this all sort of coalesces in the 80s and the 90s into what's called outcomes-based education. Have you ever heard of this? I know the phrase, yeah. All right. So we used to do a radio show, and somebody sent me show prep. He said, look at this. This was like 2011. It said, look, conservatives are trying to remove critical thinking from schools in Texas. That was like the headline. So it must have been from like Slater Salon or Media Matters or, or something. And I said, too good to be true. There's no way there's, there's active politicians publicly trying to remove critical thinking from schools. So despite whatever, you know, liberal rags reporting of it said, the actual story was that critical thinking was a term that was being used 
um, as part of an outcomes-based education program that I'll explain in a second to basically critical thinking meant parroting the right ideas, right? So they wanted like, don't use critical thinking to describe just basically being a parrot. That's not what we want critical thinking to mean. That's what they were trying to remove. But this was something that like was, was happening all over the country, late seventies, throughout the eighties, into the 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 nineties, and the first person who sounded the alarm on it that I ever heard about was this conservative like education reformer, and I think she ultimately had some political ambitions. Her name was Peg Luxick. You can find this, and I would if people are interested in this subject, I would encourage them to go and search for this this YouTube video called "Who Controls Our Children," where she's giving a talk about this. The plan is to move education away from what we have right now, which is traditional education. That's you have so many Carnegie units, you had four classes of math and four classes of English and so many classes of history to graduate to what is called outcome-based education. Outcome-based education says that the the student must demonstrate something in order to meet the goal and be promoted or graduate. In the traditional system, said this is an A, this is a B, this is a C, this is a D, this is an E, and you fit wherever you fit. Now you had so much time in order to do that, so you know you had 180 days and then the achievement went up or down according to that. In outcome-based education, the, the theory is everybody gets an A or everybody gets a B, and however long it takes you to get there is okay. If you can get there in three days, then you graduate in three days. If it takes you 10 years, then you graduate in 10 years. Everything rides on the goals and on meeting the goals. So instead of saying the schools will teach, the theory now is the student will demonstrate. And so it's a major shift in the way we look at education. In order to understand that, I want you to think of a telephone salesman. Have you ever gotten a call, telephone call from a telephone salesman? Pick up the phone and the salesman says, hi. Um, he asks you three or four questions. I'm selling purple shoes tonight, so I want to know, are you a shoe owner? And you say yes or no. And I say, do you like the color purple? And you say yes or no. Uh, do you buy your own shoes, or does your husband buy your shoes, or your wife buy your shoes, or your children buy your shoes, or does some other person buy your shoes for you? And you say yes or no. That's my pretest. I have just established the baseline data. Now I know where you are, so I can begin teaching you about why you need purple shoes. That's the pretest. Now that I've established that, I'm going to do my sales pitch, and I'm going to give you 10 reasons why you really, really need purple shoes, and you're going to, you can't live without them, and you want them. That's the curriculum. I have taught you something. I'm done now. Would you like to put that, Mrs. Smith, on your Visa or on your MasterCard? That's the post-test. I am assessing you to see if you have met my goal or not. My goal is that you're going to buy my shoes. You say, put it on my visa. You have met the goal. I'm going to say thank you very much. And you may graduate from this conversation, and I'm going to hang up. You say, no, you have not met the goal. I am going to say, um, well, why not? What is your objection? and you're going to tell me, and I am going to remediate you. I'm going to put you through another sales pitch to make you want my purple shoes. That's remediation. You're going to walk that loop with me one more time, and at the end of the remediation, I'm going to say, should I put this on your Visa or your MasterCard? I'm testing you again. That's a reassessment. If you say, yes, you have met the goal, you may graduate from the conversation, and I'm going to hang up. If you say, no, I'm going to say, what is your objection? And I'm going to remediate you again and test you again. Now, if you would stay on the phone indefinitely, 
I would keep making you walk that remediation loop until you finally said, yes, you're going to buy my shoes, until you meet the goal. However, in a telephone sales call, you can say, excuse me, I've been remediated enough, I'm never meeting your goal, and you can hang up the phone. A child in a classroom cannot hang up the phone. They are going to be remediated again and again and again and again until they meet the goal. That's outcome-based education. I also think by this time, when people realized data collection was happening, that they were trying to use the schools to train students in certain attitudinal outcomes, that it was kind of like too late to really reform anything. Like this is kind of like the point where you know it's over. The schools have this power over individuals, over families, over communities, and they've kind of all gained this, this, this operating power from, from a central agency like the Department of Education, which is now feeding directives with money down to state departments of education that is then feeding them into school districts, right? And money is attached. Like you need funding, so you have to do these things. I have this Peg Luxick quote because she was trying to reform this. She was trying to disrupt this. And she's talking about how people try to justify the function of schools, how societies need schools. And she says, one of the things they say to us we have kids who come to school without breakfast, kids who come to school from disruptive families, all this kind of stuff, and that's true. But in the Depression, we had kids who came to school without breakfast and without shoes. They were from disruptive families. And the children that grew up during World War II had all their daddies go to war and lived in single parent houses where mommy was Rosie the Riveter, and they were latchkey children, and they lived in disruptive families. But the school said, our mission, our goal is to teach academics so that these children, if they live in poverty, they have the tools they need to escape poverty, to get out, to learn other ways of life. That's our goals to teach those academic skills. So she's also kind of romanticizing schools at a period where I was really critical of them, like during World War II and the Great Depression. She goes on to say, Our kids lose twice now because they're not getting academics and no school can be a family. The whole issue here is who owns the children. The more time you spend with the kids, the more control you have over the kids. It's about control. That's really what, I mean, when you boil it all down, that's what we come down to is who controls the children of the next generation. And so what she says in this video, kids are then having like their education plans developed around remediating for attitudes and values that the school doesn't prefer. There's really only one plan. There's really only one set of standards. There's really only one set of goals. And all the districts are going to look the same, or the state has this very big hammer called academic bankruptcy that can take whatever's left of local control away from the parents. Remember the drug-free schools? You know, the districts heard that the state did it, but it really came from the federal level. And so if we, you know, we have to work through the state up to the federal level because this is really a push from the federal level down through the states. When this parent filed her complaint and we wound up finding out that here was the mandate and the mandate came from the federal level, she complained. She filed a complaint at the federal level against the curriculum in her local school district. And what the federal government said was, well, see, um, the federal protection doesn't apply because there's no federal money at the local district level. The federal government came to the state and said, do you want our money in your block grant? And the state, of course, said yes. And the federal government said, okay, here's the mandate. Federal money stopped there. State took the mandate. State turned around to school district and said, do you want our money in your school district? Yes. Here's the mandate. 
The federal money stopped at the state level, and so did the protection of federal law. But the federal mandates are jumping that line. And so what we have affecting local district policy in, in many areas is really a federal mandate and not a state mandate. It's a civil rights issue. You know, I had a reporter say to me, well, you're just mad because you, know, you don't want Marla Thomas talking to your kids. And I said, you know, this, this system gives whoever is in control of the state the opportunity to mold the character of the children to their values. Whether it's Mother Teresa or Adolf Hitler is immaterial. Neither Mother Teresa nor Adolf Hitler should have the right to mold every child in the state to their particular value system. That's the role of the families in the state. It doesn't matter whether you're liberal or conservative. It's a civil rights issue. You're right. Behavior modification is not liberal or conservative. It changes children to the state-desired response, and whoever controls the state controls the response. So this is the 90s, and this kind of leads into to No Child Left Behind, which um, you know, comes from George Bush and is this kind of conservative revision of education that, you know, we can make schools accountable to parents and to taxpayers through testing. But testing at this point, because of what Peg Luxick had been talking about, had already become these assessments. Now, George Bush doesn't know that. His secretary of education might not know that. These are entirely separate entities that are creating these assessments that are testing for far beyond just academic competency. So no child left behind comes in and, and these things are even you know more a part of the educational experience than they were when Peg Luxick was trying to blow the whistle on it in the 1990s from Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, interestingly enough, because that's where I am right now. But you know, one of the things that they were looking at in the 80s and the 90s when they were finding these things were questions, and they had to fight, like they really had to fight to get their hands on a test. I think it was called the Educational Quality, it was the EQA, the Educational Quality Assessment. They went to the state capitol in Harrisburg and they made somebody there give them a copy of the test. Now, this was a test that they believed as parents in Pennsylvania testing their children for academic aptitudes. When we looked at the EQA, parents thought it was testing reading, writing, self-esteem, citizenship. It tested locus of control, whether you are an internally motivated person or an externally motivated person, whether you stand up against a crowd or whether you go with the flow. And they scored it there was a right answer to the attitude questions. The right answer was go with the flow. In citizenship, the EQA said it did not test anything in the factual domain. It didn't matter if you knew what the United Nations was. It didn't matter if you knew who the president was or what a president was. Citizenship tested thresholds of behavior. How do I vary reward and punishment to make you do what I want you to do? And they found questions on it like, I get easily upset at home. A, very true of me. B, mostly true of me. C, mostly untrue of me. D, very untrue of me. This is called the educational quality assessment. And I think one of the questions that upset them the most was, there's a secret club at the school called the Midnight Artists. They go out late at night and they paint funny sayings and pictures on buildings. I would join this club when I knew, A, my best friend asked me to join, B, most popular students in the school were in the club, or C, my parents would ground me if they found out I joined. That last one is just completely insane because it's almost like a, a FBI profiling question. Well, here's the, the scarier thing, because this is school, there's a correct answer. I would join the group if A, my best friend were a member of the group. Child could say yes, no, or maybe. The correct answer was yes. 
I would join the group if all the popular kids were members of the group, yes, no, or maybe. The correct answer was yes. I would join the group if my parents would ground me if they found out. The correct answer was no. You are supposed to avoid punishment, but you are supposed to honor commitments to friends and go with the group. The goal was collectivism. The EQA tested for adaptability to change. What parents were told was, well, you know, our world is constantly changing, and we want people who are going to be able to go with that and, and survive that. We don't want rigid people who are, can't cope. Sounds very reasonable. The EQA tested and scored for rapid emotional adjustment to change without protest. That was the state-desired response. The EQA just didn't test the attitudes of children. It scored the attitudes of children. It was a criterion reference test. That means there's a right answer and a wrong answer. B shows a willingness to conform to group goals, and that was an attitude and value that they wanted to instill. So if necessary, these students would supposedly be remediated to get to B. The bottom criteria for the EQA was that students would exhibit what the state called a minimum positive attitude. The 11th grade EQA was written, written on a reading level between 5th and 8th grade. The EQA, out of over 400 questions, 30 of them were academic, and 385 of them were attitudes. When the district took the EQA, they got back a list from the state of where they fit with other districts in the goal. They had to write their long-range plan in order to change their curriculum to have their children achieve the minimum positive attitude. Well, how did they do that? What did they change? The state said, we'll help you. And they brought in technical assistance, either in person or in what were called resources for improvement packets that the state made available to the districts. Those packets included lists of what were called validated programs. Those are programs from all over the country that had been tested by the federal government and had been proven to change the behaviors and attitudes of children in a specific subgroup. All, um, white male children with two parents who make less than $20,000 a year. All black female children in a single parent family who make more than $50,000 a year. They could divide the children up into what were called targeted subgroups based on your race, on gender, on ability level, on education of the parents, on socioeconomic status. And the programs were tested and then declared validated, meaning that they were proven to work, to change the behaviors and attitudes of children in that subgroup. And that's what has been happening in Pennsylvania education since the 1960s. Now, did we hear about a revolution? Did we hear about, you know, anybody in public education saying, we don't do things, we, you know, we used to do things like this, but we don't do that anymore. That was very screwed up. So this is something that in the last 30 years has probably become even more sophisticated. As far and, 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 you know, it's a total violation of student privacy. It's about data collection. This data is shared. You know, we went to public school in the 80s and maybe the 90s. What did we learn about protecting our privacy or even valuing our privacy? We didn't have any. So if you think about the outcomes, if you will, uh, of this kind of testing or this kind of training throughout the entire school environment in the society that produces, I mean, look at where we are now. That's why one of the reasons I would say that, that this is the most significant of the, of the three revolutions, right? Because it allows people to basically be controlled by, like training in being controlled by the information that you put out into the world willingly. 
what comes with this is all the apparatus of gathering this information, uh, cross comparing this information, sharing this information with other interested parties. All of this is happening. So I would say that that behaviorist data collection phase of like uh, school reform is, is probably the biggest and most significant. When this was ramping up in the 1980s, there was a document released by the U.S. Department of Education, which was brand new at that time, or fairly new at that time. It was called Measuring the Quality of Education. Already, because of these assessments and this data collection that had been developed through these things that we talked about happening in the universities in the 60s and the 70s, some people are already raising concerns about the invasion of privacy. In the document, the authors write, and just like, like, let's not treat these people like they're, they're pure evil. They say, getting into the students' personal characteristics and situations invariably prompts warnings that the NAEP, that's the National Assessment of Education Program's purpose, is not to analyze human development and injunctions against confusing the measurement of educational results and the analysis of cause, right? So looking at inputs and how they create certain outcomes, basically. But it is being recognized increasingly that the measurement of achievement is incomplete without the accompanying identification of whatever educational circumstances may affect these results, unquote. Now, that's a true statement. I know that as both a student and a teacher, right? The measurement of achievement is incomplete without the accompanying identification of whatever educational circumstances or beyond outside of school circumstances may affect these results. You know, as a teacher, I worked with kids who had very distressed home lives. They didn't come into school ready to learn. Whatever stressors I had as a student, I mean, I know this as a learner now, right? If I don't have a clear mind, I can't, I can't learn most effectively. So what these guys are saying is absolutely true in this report. Measuring the quality of education is called again. But the precedent has been set. You know, our story has brought us here with the boiled frog. If it's true, it must mean it's right to do because everything else before this has been accepted. We're trying to teach kids here. We're the school system. What would you do without the school system? So in order to teach kids, we need more information about their personal lives, about what's in their heads, and everything that has been accepted since the middle of the 1800s has led us to that. Just like that, we are done talking about the real problems of K through 12 schooling. In the final show in this first section of the Essential School Sucks, coming soon, we will talk about college, and then we will move on to solutions and alternatives. Please remember to visit the show notes for more information about what was covered today and to learn how you can support the School Sucks Project in the continuation of the Essential School Sucks. I'll leave you today with a final clip from Peg Luxick, and I would ask you to think back to the previous show, The Allegory of the Cave and Misguided Student Activism in the 21st Century.
What happens in the classroom to the child? What kinds of activities is my child going to be subjected to on a regular basis? You hear a lot of talk about values clarification, and, and there's a lot of controversy about it, but people don't always understand what's wrong with it. You know, that those promoting it say, well, we're just trying to help of our children to understand their values. I want you to think of your mind as a computer. You've all heard the lifeboat story, right? You know, there's 10 people in the lifeboat. The lifeboat only holds nine. Who are we going to throw out of the lifeboat? And if I told you that story, all of your minds would start thinking, who am I going to throw out of the lifeboat? The first time I heard the lifeboat story, I was a grad student. My degree's in special ed, so I'm a ringer. And I said to the prof, well, we're not throwing anybody out of the lifeboat. We'll throw a rope out of the back of the lifeboat, and somebody swims for in one-hour shifts. There's only ever nine people in the boat, and everybody only swims three hours a day, an hour at a time. He said, there's sharks in the water. I said, there's a shark back in the boat. And the conversation ended. But I was a ringer because I knew that he had controlled the universe. He said, who are you going to throw out of your lifeboat? So all of your minds, because that's how all of our minds work, there's the box and there's where we go. Who are you going to throw out of the lifeboat? If I had said to you, come up with a solution to save everybody, you would have thrown a rope out the back of the boat. You would have turned the boat upside down in the water because it's more buoyant, put the baby on the top of the boat, everybody cling to the boat, no problem. Everybody take off all their clothes because at this point nudity is a, is a little not real important when we're saving a life. Uh, throw out everything not, not necessary in the boat. We bail for so many hours. I've heard hundreds of suggestions. If I had said to you, save everybody in the boat. But I didn't say that. I said, who are you going to throw out of the lifeboat? And so your mind went right over here. Just like a salesman says, do you want it on your Visa or your MasterCard? He gave you a choice, didn't he? Is no one of the choices? Never. And everybody I know, including me, has bought at least one thing I didn't want because I answered the question and was three minutes further in the conversation before I realized, you know, I really did want to say no. But now I'm too embarrassed to go back and say no because I don't want him to think that I'm a schmuck. And we all do that. It's the same technique that salesmen use all the time. Would you like a red car or a blue car? Do you want that in 10 days or 30 days? You always get a choice, but I control the universe of choices. That's how various clarification works. If I control the universe of choices, I can mold someone's behavior. And they always think that they thought it up by themselves because they didn't realize that I controlled the box. That's why values clarification is wrong. Because it makes the child think that they made up their own mind when they really didn't, because I gave them some very concrete guidelines inside of which they had to make up their mind. And it's a very valid way of changing a behavior. This is it's called the Bettendorf survey. We found it in Iowa. It was used this year. Why is Iowa important? Remember, all the goals in all the states are the same. And we have validated programs that are the same over the whole country. This is the Bettendorf survey. It goes with understanding and appreciating others. Can, are you male or female? What year are you? This was given to high school students. Do you regard yourself as a bigot? Do you think homosexuality is a problem society must deal with as strictly as possible? Do you think people are born homosexual, or do you think they choose to be homosexual? Do you think the United States was stolen from Native Americans, or do you think it was rightfully colonized by Europeans? Then we have the nationality and religion list. Which of the above do you think is responsible for the decline of the United States economy? Which of the above do you think is more susceptible to alcoholism? Which of the above do you think is the most likely to raise a large family, eight or more children? Which of the above are you most likely to assume does not speak fluent English? Which of the above do you think is the most likely to have an income of over 50,000? Which of the above do you think would be most likely to eliminate an entire race? Who has most influenced the way you feel about other races? 
with whose influence have you most strongly disagreed? If you could eliminate an entire race, would you? Which one? The New American Schools Development Corporation met. I told you there were 486 grants given to them. On July 9th, they gave a list of the places that got the money, and they gave out 11 grants. Now, I've been telling you that the grants are the same, and I've been telling you that this is talking about who owns the children, and that, in this case, business and the state think they do. 